0: Hello, and welcome to The Body Protest.
1: In this podcast, we combine storytelling with science to better understand how we think, feel, and relate to our bodies. I'm Nadia Craddock, and I'm a body image researcher. And I'm Honey Ross, writer and
0: activist. This podcast is brought to you by The Pink Protest.
1: Okay, Body Protesters, I am so excited for you all to listen to this episode. It's a real gem, and a particularly special one for me. Honey and I speak with my boss, mentor, and friend Professor Philippa Didricks. I've worked with Philippa for the past five years and she's taught me nearly everything I know about body image research.
0: It's so special, and we had such an important conversation about weight stigma, the problem with the government's new obesity strategy, and why representation matters. Um it's really powerful to have the science on some of this.
1: Absolutely. You may wish to take notes. There will be a quiz. <laughs> Philippa, really good to have you on the Body Protest podcast. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: No, it's a pleasure to be here. I um yeah, I'm really excited to speak with you both today.
1: Very fun for me. Obviously, Philippa and I work together. And Philippa, you're a professor in psychology and, and head up the whole stream of research with the Dove Self-Esteem Project at the Centre for Appearance Research. But I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about what you do and maybe also how you got there.
2: Yeah, Nadia, you will know a lot of my answers um, already since we've talked Mm -hmm. about these topics at length, but I um, have always been fascinated by bodies, women, and culture from a very young age. I can remember doing actually my first presentation on lack of representation with fashion models in grade eight at high school before PowerPoint and we were photocopying the overhead projectors slides and things like that and um that was obviously at that stage was kind of an observation of me being a teenager and my friends and kind of looking at in Australia they were called um the magazines with Dolly and Girlfriend were kind of the main teen magazines and just how like they talk they're starting to talk a lot about eating disorders but also just you know getting the sense of actually most of the people that we're seeing don't look anything like me maybe a little bit more like my friends, but certainly not me, as someone who's um always grown up in a in a larger body, and um, I was just always kind of fascinated more broadly about how society and culture can influence people. And of course, I wouldn't have put it in those words back then. But when I was um, looking at you know what I wanted to study at university. Um, The one that I liked, the sound of the most, was anthropology. Um, So, you know, looking at the study of culture and people. But the job outcomes were researcher and lecturer. And I was like, oh, my God, that sounds terrible. I can't do that. (laughs) Um, And so I went to university and um, I've always just, I guess, followed my nose as to what excites me and what I'm interested in. So I took a whole range of different subjects in my first year at uni from women's studies, to asian studies history psychology cognitive science philosophy and one graphic design that was going to be my other career at one point naturally really liked psychology kept studying more and was drawn to the research um, in particular on eating disorders and then decided you know that i realized that it's very difficult to kind of you can't you know practice as a psychologist or perhaps get research jobs if you don't do postgraduate studies so Kind of fell into a very long career at university and did my phd um looking at bodies and body image but in particular um i kind of was like how do we actually do something about this topic which you know by this stage i'm in my mid-20s and you're still this it's the same conversation as that presentation i had when i did when i was 13 about lack of representation so i set out with the lofty goal to change what we call in the research the thin ideal But really, you know, that's what's being called in the research, but really, you know, Nadia, as you know, in our work, we call it the appearance ideal or appearance ideals. And basically, how do we disrupt the media landscape? And so I did my PhD looking at representation of uh, women's and men's bodies and media and trying to diversify that, looking at the impact of that on consumers body image, but also looking at how consumers responded to brands that showcase more diversity, which at the time hadn't really been looked into a lot. And of course you know, found that viewing more diverse models made consumers either feel better about their bodies or just not worse than looking at the traditional, narrowly defined, very thin or very muscular models. Um, But interestingly, at that point in time, and so this is like, you know, between 2006 and 2010, that consumers responded positively to the greater diversity, which seems like a no-brainer now because it's much more common, but it wasn't so much back then. And then during my PhD, I discovered the Center for Appearance Research, which is obviously Nadia, where you and I work now, loved the research that was being done. And um, coming to your question about how do I describe what I do? It's funny because I could never really summarize, as you can tell by this long monologue, Um, what I do succinctly but um, a job was advertised at the Center for Appearance Research and the post the actual job title was creating environments that accept and promote diversity of appearance and I was like oh my god that's like my whole kind of passion in one sentence and I think that's essentially I've now been at the center for over 10 years I'm no longer a PhD student or a postdoc. I became a professor in psychology a couple of years ago. I can't believe I get paid to do what I do. I get to work with a team of amazing women, um, researchers, including Nadia. We look at what influences how people think and feel about the way they look with a particular focus on adolescents and children. And then we take that information and we look at all the different scientific developments around the world, what's working in mental health, what's working in body image. Um, to actually help people create you know, a more positive and accepting relationship with their bodies. And then we create online tools and community programs for children and adolescents that get delivered to um, now to millions of people in over 136 countries, largely in partnership with the Dove Self-Esteem Project, but also other partners like UNICEF, World Association for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts. Um, and a bunch of other organizations and so yeah I can't quite believe that that's my job.
0: I mean it's amazing it's amazing the work you both do I think on behalf of everybody in the world I'm very grateful for you both. Uh (laughs) No it's it's so incredible and I think you know we clearly all very much care about the same things but it's so nice that there are people doing it on such a big scale it's really reassuring.
2: Thank you. Yeah, we we care a lot about the work we do. And it's, of course, not any job is easy. um, But it is nice to see it having that broad impact. And, you know, as you guys know, Mm. with the success of your podcast and the work that you do, this is a topic that really resonates with so many people. Everyone has a relationship with their bodies. And almost everyone has experienced time in their lives where they've been shamed for their body or how they look. Um, Mm. And that really frustrates me particularly that that disproportionately affects girls and women or non-binary individuals or more feminine presenting men and that kind of social justice angle is just such a huge driver as well it just outrages me um, and frustrates me to think about how people particularly girls and women are held back in life by that still Um, so that's the big driving force I think Nadia if you would agree behind a lot of the work we do.
1: Yeah completely and I think just even having some of the stats that we have through some of Dove's work with the eight out of ten girls opt out of those important life activities because of concerns about the way they look it is such a big frustration point and you're like well this doesn't need to be the case and I think that's how I've always thought about it is that this doesn't this doesn't need to be the case things can change and I think the thing that's really exciting with doing body image intervention work and really looking very closely at the science behind that is that we you can change how people think and feel about the way they look you can body image is not a static construct you can change how you think and feel and I think so there's so much potential in that and the work that we do and I think that's what always really excites me with working on the projects that we do and and of course the the scale of the projects and the partners that we get to work with and understanding all the different cultural nuances with and the various projects and all the cool tech stuff it is incredible and it's like it's fun to hear you talk about it and then it's when we talk about it in this kind of capacity it makes it feel um I don't know it's a point of reflection on on what it is that we do because I think sometimes in the day-to-day it's just like we're doing our job and then actually now it's like wow and it's not glamorous it's not
2: glamorous at all it's a lot of meetings
0: and things and it's
2: yeah but it is it is really rewarding and it's nice to reflect on it and talk about it
0: no i'm so glad philip i'd love if you could tell us about some of the standout projects or actually if there have been any projects that have personally impacted your relationship with your body
2: yeah that's a really good question um i think one of the early on ones which has actually brought nadia and i together and how we met um and when Nadia joined our team was the the project that I mentioned a little bit earlier about with the World Association for Girl Guides and Girl Scouts and Dove. I don't know honey were you a brownie or a scout when you were younger?
0: No I wish I was though yes. so much more than anything but anyway I'm, I'm familiar <laughs> I love them. Well I, I, <laughs> I have... love the
2: brownies. <laughs> I have to say I also was not Nadia We've had this before, but I can't remember. Were you?
1: No, no, I was not. I was involved in all my other activities, but yeah, no.
2: Well, this is an anomaly then, because normally anyone I have a conversation about this project with, there is always someone, um, particularly with larger audiences. And often, you know, if I'm in a room and say, was anyone a brownie or a scout? At least half the room puts up their hand. And that's perhaps not surprising when you realise that it's the biggest youth organisation for girls in the world. Uh, So they have membership organisations In over 150 countries, and phenomenally, they have over 10 million girls who are signed up. But also, they have a million adult volunteers, and that's what blows me away about this organization. All of these predominantly women give up their time for girls around the world, and they're very invested. And so, Dove formed a partnership with them, and we at the center were brought on board to really think about. Okay, they wanted to create a body image program for girls around the world, and what would that look like? And You know, lots of different organizations have body image programs, but the issue is, is that not all of them actually are effective or do have the impact that people hope that they would. Um, So on the face, they look like that they would, you know, actually be beneficial. But then when you research them rigorously, you find out they either have no impact or in some cases, unfortunately, can cause harm. So, we took one of the most uh, rigorously researched body image tools, called, actually called the Body Project, which was developed by some researchers in the US, Carolyn Becker and Eric Stice, and did this really intensive six month process of working with Girl Guys and Girl Scouts to adapt that program. And then uh, we put it out there. And what was really cool about it was it was initially intended for 11 or 12 countries, which, in and of itself, was very exciting. But the program actually went viral after a year um, and it's been taken up in 136 countries around the world. Why this is a standout for me is because I know that we had to work in partnership to have a program like that. And I think increasingly in the body positive space, there can be different organizations or different brands or different people who really you know, have an interest in this topic but don't all necessarily come together. And that was an example of these different organizations coming together. I was like, well, if we create a body image program, say for girls that are in the U.S., that are in Western Europe, is that going to resonate with girls in India, Thailand, Rwanda, all over the world? And what we saw was, yes, it did. Um, and actually, although there were subtle tweaks, Nadia, um, you would be able to talk about that a lot because you have helped a lot with that research project where we spoke to all the different countries. Yeah. But... It was just that this was a universal issue, and the stories that I heard about from some of the leaders in Rwanda saying, "Well, yes, this is really important because you know if you're a family that can only afford to send one of your three daughters to school, you're going to pick the pretty one," or if you hear in India mm-hmm. they said, "Actually, we're going to pick our daughter who's less attractive because the prettier one's going to go and get married and then she'll be fine," um, and so you would hear stories of around all around the world. It was even delivered in a Syrian refugee camp, and it's just like bl- mind-blowing, even to someone like me who obviously cares a lot about this issue, that this is really a big issue, that all around the world, no matter you know the level of privilege you have, and if actually it compounds even more, as we know, with class and race and gender and everything else, but this was globally relevant, and I think that really impacted me um a lot Nadia what did you you know would you agree with that
1: yeah I mean 100% one that's like the really exciting part of that project in terms of how it had that global reach and the need that people said about it but also just the the thing that I would always remember are the how they would make these small small changes to make it relevant and work for them and just to hear that like over and over again from all these different countries all all around the world saying that actually you know this is really relevant they need it Um, the girls really engage with it and then them talking about the differences that they see within the girls from the start to the end of the program and it's like a four or five session program and
2: yeah Nadia you've just reminded me the other really cool thing about it what we found in the research was it wasn't only the girls who benefited but the adult leaders who were delivering the program yeah obviously by talking about these issues and you know their role in that really is to help challenge girls to think about how to stand up for themselves basically and challenge societal pressures um, and show leadership in that space which is a big core value of girl guides and girl scouts but the leaders themselves said that they found it you know really beneficial which is actually a pattern that we see in the research more broadly and you know i don't know honey if you've felt it yourself but if you're a person who's constantly talking about this issue and also standing up and saying this is you know it's not okay that society puts Mm. these pressures on girls and women that in and of itself, when you're doing that, even though sometimes you, you know, I don't have perfect body image. Um, I, mean, I don't know anyone that does. But no, by no being a champion, does, yeah, exactly. But by being a champion for it and championing for other girls and women's, that's beneficial to us as well, which is interesting.
0: No, I've completely found that. I, you know, it's impossible to talk about this subject as much as we do and not, um, you know, continue to explore the journey of our own relationship with our body image. And I think, uh, you know, me and Nadia always say this, but it's such an ongoing journey and it's a journey that you will be, you know, tackling your entire life. And I think it's like the younger, you can kind of inform people or like, it doesn't even matter if you're not young. I think it's, you know, the Girl Guide uh, volunteers learning from the programme is so amazing because it's like, there is always work to be done on yourself and there is always room to kind of challenge your perception of yourself and I think that's it's so amazing
2: and you've actually just re- reminded me because you also asked me the one that impacted my body image so I you know growing up of course had you know as any teenage girl did was self-conscious about my body I can remember comments that were made up to me in primary school particularly from boys but just comments about my body and being larger which is so ridiculous because I look back at photos then and where I felt self-conscious and not that that's justifiable for any body size but I look at that and I think wow how um screwed up is that that you know I was being teased about my weight back then but I um had internalized that and a lot of shame and I remember in I was actually in my final undergraduate year and my dissertation was on body image uh, and just saying to a friend that, that that was the first year. So at that point, I'm 22, where I would felt comfortable publicly speaking about body image, apart from obviously my little um, turn in year eight at school. And um, <laughs> and I was like, because for some reason, just talking about it brought it to life and obviously brought up a lot of anxiety in me personally um, and that friend um, Fiona Barlow who's now also she is an amazing anti-discrimination researcher but we laugh about it a little bit now because she's always like remember when you felt like you couldn't even talk about the issue and now it's what I do on a daily basis and I think certainly I'm lucky to be critically thinking about this issue and talking about it all the time and that has mm. been beneficial to me personally too.
0: It's so interesting how I think a large part of the reason this work is so important is because it's empowering people to speak up and, you know, use their voices because so many people are held back by feeling self-conscious or feeling uncomfortable in their body. You know, people don't step forward and speak up because of that. And I think it's amazing to see that you are literally an example of someone whose body image relationship was healed through talking about this. And now this is literally, you know, your life is speaking about it. And that's incredible
2: yeah and that's certainly one part of it but I think the other bit for me like that I found amazing for my own body image it's not so much to do with my personal work but uh through social media um and honey I know that you post a lot of pictures like this but I remember obviously I never saw um my body represented in media or if I did see it represented it was you know in a you know, in a derogatory way, in a stereotypical way, which is...
0: Yes, completely. You know,
2: also reflected in the research, There's studies, whether they've systematically analysed the content of sitcoms and magazines and children's media to look at how different body sizes are portrayed and larger bodies are always portrayed as eating food, you know, sitting down, or they're the evil people or they're the lazy ones or they're the unintelligent ones or the dirty Mm. ones. Um, And so I never saw that. And what for me was really powerful... When social media became more popular, um, and particularly um, the plus size fashion bloggers, and it was even before Instagram, like Live Journal, I was in a plus size fashion Mm. community, and that, and seeing you know people such as yourself, but seeing you know diverse bodies and bikinis and things uh, or bras, and I just Mm -hmm. never seen that before. And um, I think you guys were talking about it in a recent episode about how criticism of the body positive movement of being sexualized. Or those images being sexualized and objectifying, and I feel like that's a very privileged position to come from that point of view um to say that you know you know to criticize um plus size um, or for want of a better word, people who are posting photos of themselves in their underwear or in their bikinis it 's like you've never seen those positive representations before, and actually those those pictures aren't necessarily for everyone to consume and to judge, so that was also really. For me, um, you know, to see that and also to be like, yeah, they look amazing. Um, So now all I wear is bikinis pretty much and I don't care what other people think.
0: (laughs) Oh, it's no, it's the most liberating thing. And uh, yeah, we definitely spoke about this recently of, you know, I definitely found similar communities through Tumblr and things like that. And it was just, yeah. Being able to see that it's uh, it's possible, you know you can just frolic in a bikini and have a nice time as a bigger woman, and it's that's so special. Um, obviously, we hear so much about why representation is so important, but could you tell us a bit more about what the research behind that is? Yeah, says? sure.
2: So as I kind of already mentioned, there's loads of studies um, that have systematically coded media and found that positive depictions of diverse body sizes and shapes, ages, ethnicities are really underrepresented and when they are presented it's in a stereotypical manner. And what we also know, there's hundreds of studies now that have looked at the impact of when consumers like you and me and other people look at these images in the media and what they find is it has an immediate negative impact on people's body image. So just viewing these images for a couple of minutes um, makes people feel worse, particularly girls and women. Um, On the flip side, we also know that when people look at more diverse and positive representations, it makes them feel more positive and equally it's good for business as well to do that which Nadia um, has written a whole PhD on um, and is much more of an expert than me in (laughs) that Uh, and that's why it matters because like I said growing up if I don't see those positive depictions you internalize that shame and then you think oh playing sport isn't for me you know wearing those certain clothes isn't for me or for people like me Um, and it's that just subtly chips away I think at your idea of that your body is not okay and that it's it's something to be shamed and that's very hard to unpick and we know that from a very young age the research shows that you know children as young as four have internalized those stereotypes and will you know do things to indicate that being fat is bad um that being in a wheelchair or having a scar is bad so from a very young age and that's just as early as that we can actually measure it uh so it's at a very young age and then hear that over a lifetime and it becomes very un-un uh, difficult to unravel that relationship and make sense of the world
1: yeah I think all of that is just so important and I think the whole thing with representation it's like it's more than just the image right it's more than just the bikini shot on on the beach it's like what that represents and in terms of like people of all appearances shape sizes whatever can go and like go on and just like live their life without those restrictions put on them from the world and the shame put on them from the world because to internalize that shame that shame has to be that has to come from somewhere for you then to internalize it so um I think yeah all of that representation is just so important and yeah just thanks for sharing all of that Philippa so I want to change tracks a little bit although it is related and just kind of get into the science of weight bias So we know, I mean, we're recording this at the beginning of September, and we know at the end of July, the UK government put out their new obesity strategy and Public Health England did their like, um, quote unquote, better health campaign and launched that as well. So Philippa, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about why these kind of obesity strategies can be so problematic.
2: You know, we've talked a lot about shame already. And I think
1: Mm -hmm.
2: What we see in a lot of these campaigns, even if, you know, they've done with a more positive angle or tried to be more upbeat, like I think the most recent um, campaign is that there is a lot of shame associated with people's bodies and you can't ignore that. And as we've said, this, this comes from like such a young age and people grow up feeling that shame. And I think what happens with campaigns that focus explicitly on obesity or you know, weight loss in particular is that it draws attention to weight as being the primary kind of indicator of health and well-being um, and a marker of your success as a person and it also feeds into the idea that we can make, take, you know, make an accurate judgment or assessment of a person's health by looking at them or by weighing them or calculating their body mass index or their BMI when actually the research shows that the relationship between weight and health is much, much more complex um, than just being able to say if you're in this BMI category, then you are unhealthy. Uh, and what the research, um, it's very nuanced. I'm not a nutrition expert or a dietitian, um, but what the research typically shows that unless you're at the very low or very, very high ends of the weight spectrum, the relationship between weight and health isn't an easy correlation. Body mass index was never intended to be a metric to judge health on. It's a very imprecise metric. It was actually developed by a Belgium astronomer in the 1800s. And it was adopted by an insurance company in the US in the 50s as a way of categorizing people easily. Um, And I think because it's such an easy measure. So for example, if you go into the doctor, they can quickly weigh you um, and then they'll get your height and then they'll put that in. And this happens to me all the time. And then there's a warning alerts that pop up on their screens. To basically give me all these particular recommendations um, about, and then you know the GP will say to me, "Oh, Philippa, um, I'm going. I'm by the way, I'm going to the doctor to get my migraine medication. I had scoliosis when I was growing up, so something about my back. And you know, I'll get the casual. Oh, Philippa, have you ever thought about losing weight? Uh, and like the irony of that is, do you think that someone in my body size will never have anyone comment on my body or my weight? That may never have occurred to me. Um, but also that's one, not what I came to the doctor about. Two, you have said that on the basis of two numbers that have you know been calculated by a formula that was never intended to be used in this way and have completely disregarded all the other data that you have on me, which is that my cholesterol is good, my blood pressure is good. Um, you haven't asked me how often I exercise or you know what type of foods that I enjoy eating or what my relationship is with my body. And so we get these very casual prompts like that, the GP is one, or this, this campaign that we're talking about, you know, it's popping up in my Instagram feed, um, it's on BBC, uh, it's, you know, mm-hmm. these casual mentions. And in isolation, it doesn't take into account how that messaging is very um, triggering for a lot of people. Uh, it oversimplifies the relationship between weight and health. And I would argue, I'm not really sure it serves anyone. Because if you only have campaigns that talk about weight and weight loss and movement and physical activity and eating for the benefit of uh, weight loss, you miss all of the other really important benefits of movement and pleasurable activity and of having a balanced and healthy relationship with eating. Also, you miss out on all the people who don't look like those people in the ads or ostensibly aren't overweight. And I say that in quote unquote, you can't see me. Um that, that ignores the fact that people who would be in a supposedly normal weight category or underweight category, are they healthy? Are they you know engaging in physical activity and eating? So I don't think it serves anyone. We also know that those campaigns, any campaigns that cause fear or shame have unintended well, not unintended consequences, have negative consequences. When people experience shame about their bodies, and the evidence clearly shows you're much more likely to be shamed about your body if you're a higher weight. Um, and interestingly for women, the threshold is even lower. Um, so for example, in the BMI metric, so 20 to 25 is seen to be 24.9 is the normal weight. 25 to 30 is overweight and 30 and over is obese. What the research shows is women typically start to experience weight bias from a BMI threshold of 27. So just over that kind of normal weight. Whereas for men, it doesn't come much later to 29 or 30, immediately showing it's very gendered weight bias. Also, it doesn't take into account, I'm still going here, this is a very long answer. It also, (laughs) you know, we know that weight intersects with class and socioeconomic status. In fact, that's one of the best predictors of your BMI, is your socioeconomic status. Um, It also intersects with race and ethnicity. And so if you just focus on that, it ignores all of these other factors that contribute to our body weight and our health. Um, And when people experience weight bias and weight based discrimination, which is basically negative judgments about someone based upon their weight, which is the fourth most common form of discrimination after um, age, race and gender. When they experience that, it actually has a detrimental impact on both their psychological and physical health. So even if all of those messages are well-intended, what we know is experiencing weight bias and weight shame leads to more disordered eating. It leads to depression um, and anxiety. It leads to increased blood pressure and increased cortisol levels. And there's a whole field of research on that. So I don't think those campaigns serve anyone. I think they reinforce stereotypes. Um, I don't think... Uh, I think there are other ways that we can promote healthful... Uh, uh, you know, healthy behaviours among the whole population without singling out certain people. Then let's just escape the irony of the fact that this is for during a pandemic, 95% of diets fail. Mm. Um, And also there is very little evidence to suggest that people can lose weight and sustain that weight loss after 12 months, most likely people cycle and weight, go up and down, yo-yo dieting, which has a lot of evidence to show that it's problematic for heart attacks and a whole range of other things. So we're in the middle of a pandemic. Oh, this is a great time where to focus on weight loss when we don't have any effective strategies for that. And I was like talking to a colleague and I'm like, by the time we have an effective strategy for weight loss, we're gonna have a vaccine for COVID. So there's all sorts of problems with it in a nutshell.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I think it's important that it's such a long answer because it this is a question that gets asked over and over and over and there are so many different components of it and I think I mean, you covered the, the full spectrum in terms of why BMI is problematic and I think the other thing with BMI is that in addition to it being developed in the what, 1800s or what, whenever it was but it's also based on data from white men so then yes. how does that apply to women? How does it apply yeah. to people from different ethnicities? And actually people are built in very different way so then like how does that even compute and translate to other people's bodies so like that's you know that whole thing i think is like just not helpful or useful and then yeah and actually especially when we're talking about this in the context of covid and the pandemic that we're in a we're in a point where more people than ever are depending on food banks and then so it just feels a bit um rich to me to then come and say well actually all take care of your your diet and your exercise regimes when we've got this we've just got so much else happening and that we also and as philip as you, you pointed out that we've got this correlation and it's like the most robust correlation between like socioeconomic status and and weight so then actually, can we put some money into addressing poverty, put some money into having, like, equal access to um, a wide variety of foods? Like, let's that would be a good investment then rather than telling people, like, oh, you know, I've got a great idea for you. Like, why do not you all lose £10? Like, that, it just doesn't make any sense to me.
0: And also kind of coming back to what you said, uh, Philippa, about kind of, you know, there's, there's better ways to encourage healthy behaviours rather than shaming people, and I think... You know, I think I didn't realize exercise was meant to be fun until my twenties because I felt like I had been so bullied and shamed by PE teachers and just the government in general. It seems so. It seems like such a shame and a waste that so many people kind of uh, bullied into exercising, so they don't actually get any of the kind of mental health benefits of it or the kind of uh, grounding benefits. Well, of it.
2: exactly, and it just creates this. If you're only thinking about food and exercise through the lens of weight loss. Or weight maintenance then you know it just it creates all of these really disordered uh, thinking patterns and behaviors and actually I was just looking for my phone through my phone because I took a screenshot of this um, the ad that popped up for this campaign um, on my social media feed recently and it, it says weight spelt w-e-i-g-h-t off my mind And i think the irony of that is you know the play on words to be like you know the weight off my mind is though by losing weight that's not only implying you know losing weight you'll be healthier but losing weight is going to solve some of your like mental problems or your worries and anxieties and i'm pretty like i don't know really of any evidence to support that claim Um, And how you would disentangle that from being actually, does losing weight make you feel better about yourself, or does losing weight make you feel better, you know, less shame because then you conform to what society expects of you? We do know that exercising and moving your body in a pleasurable way that's enjoyable, you know, is associated with better mood and less anxiety and everything like that. As is when you, you know, Nadi rightly pointed out, when you have access and are able to eat the foods. That you want to eat and that choose and that feel good to you and that nourish your body and that taste nice, um, that has benefits. But I don't know of any evidence, Nadia, correct me if I'm wrong, to show that weight loss has this direct link to improved mental health beyond these other range of other confounding factors. And so I feel like it's very simplistic messages for what is a much more complicated issue. Because as I said, there is a relationship with weight and health, but it's much more complex than just, you know, energy. Yeah, it's much more complex than energy intake, you know, energy in, energy out, and that ignores. What I also find really problematic is we know that rates of disordered eating and eating disorders are really high. We know that rates of mental health are really high. Nadia, your point about um, race and ethnicity and class, you know, there are so many health inequities in society And I was like, why wasn't all of this money invested in in trying to address those health inequalities that exist, which is why different ethnic groups are, you know, faring worse in terms of COVID. And why isn't that being addressed instead of being like, oh, no, let's just tell everyone to lose weight. Then you're at less risk for this disease um, and you're going to feel better about yourself. It's much more complex than that.
1: I mean completely I think I mean I don't like there's not even anything to add I guess the
2: other thing Nadia though that I would say is we're talking about this probably people wouldn't be surprised that people you know like the three of us would think this given you know you guys host a podcast called the body protest and I'm a body image researcher as are you Nadia what I would say is I've obviously given a very impassioned response to this and that's because I feel so strongly about it because on a daily basis I see the downsides and the detrimental impacts of this approach but what I would say is there's an evidence base and there's scientific research backing up all the things that we are saying. This evidence exists to show that weight-based prejudice is damaging. There's over 30 years of research showing that. There's decades of research showing ineffective um, dieting and weight loss strategies. There's research showing that when people look at stigmatising anti-obesity campaigns. Is it any surprise that people you know, keep talking about obesity rising at epidemic proportions? We hear that all the time. These campaigns don't work. Weight loss programs don't work. It's why they, you know, generate so much money. And um, what I really think we should be focusing on instead is about trying to encourage everyone of all body sizes and shapes, of all ethnicities, of all social classes, to have, you know, accept their bodies, respect their bodies and take good care of their bodies, recognising that it's not as simple as an individual choice, that, there are so many factors in society and systems around you that will influence your ability to be able to even do these things. It's not just a decision that you make overnight and then that's going to happen. And it's not just about willpower, which is what a lot of these campaigns imply, is that if you make a decision and you stick to it, mm-hmm. and if you're strong enough, you can get there, completely undermining all of the social systems and structures that influence our way and influence our well-being.
1: It's so... Important to add that evidence base in there, and and then just thinking back to those commercial weight loss diets, like if they worked, we wouldn't need them anymore. So again, that's why it seems so simple when you hear it, like oh yeah, fine, just lose weight, what big deal? But actually, if they worked, no one would need them. So I think that's it's Yeah, really important to to bring up. Then, Philippa, I think maybe especially given the work that we do on body image and a question that we all get asked and I think the three of us honey I know you definitely get asked this as well but with um, promoting positive body image and then you get asked the question about what about your health and how promoting positive body image actually if you look at the research is so associated with positive health promoting behaviors and I think that's something that there's always or often a disconnect for people because I think there's this idea that if you hate your body and shame your body in some way that you can make it better and then become more healthy and Philippa I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about some of the the evidence with having a positive body image and and those health outcomes.
2: Yeah so there's some classic studies um, particularly ones conducted by um, Professor Diane Newmark-Steiner at the University of Minnesota and her colleagues where they've tracked teenagers um, their study's actually now been running for 20 years, uh, but they tracked teenagers all throughout their adolescence and into adulthood, um, and it's some of the most compelling data and evidence to show that if you have positive body image, it, much, it predicts later on in life better psychological health and well-being, you're more likely to eat fruits and vegetables, you're more likely to engage in physical activity, and that's irrespective of body size. And the same research, which has also been supported now in other studies and other laboratories and um, research groups around the world, is if you experience weight-based bullying and teasing and shaming, it has the opposite impact of that. Uh, and so we often, yeah, Nadia, you're exactly right. One of the most common questions I get asked if I get up there, for example, and had talked about the Girl Guides program, you know, and the, the amazing impact that that and it resonated around the world. One of the most common questions I get that don't we have an obesity problem and aren't you worried that by promoting acceptance of, you know, encouraging people to accept and respect their bodies is all of sudden that's going to mean that people aren't going to want to ever move or that they're not going to, you know, want to eat a piece of fruit or eat vegetables, which then to me is, is crazy because it's like assuming that the only reason that you choose to do those things is to control your, you know, is to control your body or because to punish it because you don't like it. But actually if what the concerns are with these obesity campaigns is really about health then we should be focusing on the behaviors because obesity and weight is not a behavior. It's just it's just a, you know, it's it's a measure like in the same way that height is or the distance between my hand and my elbow is. It's all these other factors. And so what if you're really, you know, genuine about promoting health, actually promoting positive body image, which, you know, what that actually means is accepting your body, respecting your body, and also listening to your body and really listening hard, which is hard to do when there's so many, you know, messages telling us that tuning into our bodies and giving it rest when it needs it, giving it the food if we can afford it and have access to it that it craves and that it wants, um, and moving our bodies so that they feel good and getting enough sleep and protecting our bodies by engaging in safe sex behaviours and filtering out harmful messages. That's what we mean by positive body image. And if you do those things, you're much more likely to have a healthy relationship with food, exercise and your mental and physical health as well.
1: Brilliant. That sums it up so nicely. (laughs) Um, This has been really brilliant, Philippa. Really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Before we go,
0: yeah, we love to end the podcast on what are your kind of go to tips for if you're having a bit of a strange body image day, how do you like to boost yourself? You know, what are things that make you feel good in your body?
2: What I try to focus on, which is actually also being shown in the research to be a very effective strategy for lots of people, not just me. But I try to focus on being grateful for my body um, and appreciating my body and focusing on the functions of my body rather than what it looks like. Uh, And so that could be, you know, my arms allow me to hug my nephew uh, or my brain allows me to do the work that I do or to express myself, to move my face um, or my creative pursuits or all of those other things that are like such a huge part of my, you know, my identity and who I am and to remind myself of those things. And by focusing on body functionality holistically is a really positive um, strategy. I think using social media for good. So I I am very conscious of not following accounts that make me feel bad about myself or perpetuate kind of stereotypical images or messages. Um, so I will, you know, look at those as well. Um, and more recently, honey, a bit like you, you said, you know, in your 20s, I was a bit much more later on, turning 38 in two weeks time and um have had a very kind of, not fraught, but... Like, I didn't really like exercise or movement. I, I Growing up, I liked playing netball. I liked swimming at the beach. I liked going for walks, but also was told that you need to exercise to lose weight or to discipline your body. Um, and one of the things that has been amazing for me over lockdown is that I've really kind of developed this new relationship with movement and exercise. Um, and so what I, I love to do it now, like I'm doing all these things that I could never do before and I... I'm enjoying that movement and that makes me feel great about my body as well.
0: That's so nice. No, it's really special when you're able to reconnect with yourself on that level and like, you know, be like, wow, I I can really do this. I can move around and it's so liberating. I'm so glad you found that in lockdown. Thank you so much for joining us. You're amazing.
2: Thank you. It's been so fun talking to you. And thank you both for all the work that you do um, to challenge these preconceptions. It's really, really important work that you're doing.
1: Brilliant. And Philippa, just before you leave us, Where can we find you on social media or anything else you want to plug?
2: Uh, I am on Instagram, uh, philipha.deadricks, and also on Twitter, and I have a website as well. Wonderful.
1: Okay, brilliant. We'll share all of those links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to the Body Protest Podcast. We
0: hope you've enjoyed this episode. It would mean the world to us if you could subscribe, rate and review.
1: You can follow Honey on Instagram at HoneyKinney. And you can follow Nadia at Nadia.Craddock. This podcast is edited by the Angels at Project Harness, Davian and Rasheen.
0: And brought to you by the
1: Pink Protest Podcast Network.